Hello and welcome to another episode of Corncast. I'm Josh Flavin. And I'm Jordan Hall. And on this very special Halloween episode of Corncast, we're going to talk about the very broad subject of the occult. And we have a very special guest with us here today, uh, Professor Richard Spence. Uh, he works at the University of Idaho, and he is an expert in the field. Uh, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, I'm, I'm Rick Spence, and I do indeed teach at the University of Idaho in the History Department. And, and one of the things that I study, well, that <clears throat> falls into what I study is, is the occult. Uh, basically. You know, if you want to classify me, I am, in a broad sense, a, a modern European historian with a particular interest in Russia and Eastern Europe. But from, from there, I branch out into things like military history in the Middle East and espionage. And all of that is what, in some way or another, has drawn my interest further into things like secret society the cult. Awesome. Yeah, I saw, I saw that you've got quite a broad range of studies. Um, you also have written a couple of books, it looks like. Um, so that's, that's pretty interesting. What can you tell us about your publications? Well, let's see. Um, I, read, I think I've written four books, co-authored a, a fifth one. Uh, probably best known for, that, that will probably be, be inscribed on my tombstone since we're in the ha Halloween mood. <laughs> is is probably uh, Secret Agent 666, Alistair Crowley, British Intelligence in the Occult. So generally, if I'm interviewed about something or if somebody wants to talk to me about something, it's, it's usually about Alistair Crowley. So I'm actually kind of glad that you specifically didn't ask for that. Um, yeah. uh, sorry, so that... Go ahead. Yeah, that, that's that's one. Uh, my most recent book is uh, on a very different thing, just to show you that I'm not all... Uh, into the occult as it has to do with with politics and and economics and uh, and espionage and it's called Wall Street and the Russian Revolution uh, and that just came out uh, a couple of years back. I've also written a biography of a spy named Sidney Riley and I wrote a biography of a Russian political adventurer slash revolutionary called Boris Savinkov. So uh, there you. There you have my sort of uh, quick one. And then the other thing that I've done, which isn't a book, but which I would say was a lot more work than a book, uh, was something that, that you actually had, a, you had uh, listened to and approached me about, which was a lecture series uh, called The Real History of Secret Societies that I did for the great courses. So I wanted to be sure and get that plug in because it will make them happy. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's really, really well done. Um, I have, I'm not all the way through it yet, but it is very good. Um, I, I, as soon as I saw that you were from here in Idaho, I had to try to, to get you on. So I'm glad that you were able to join us. And you mentioned earlier that you, you frequently get asked about Al Alistair Crawley. And, uh, I, I kind of decided to deliberately, uh, avoid that particular subject because I think it's kind of been beaten to death in other podcasts. So, um, I just decided we could talk about other things. Um, what what would you define how would you define the occult because it's such a huge subject if you had one sentence how would you do it well occult simply means hidden that's all that it really means something which is obscured or hidden from view something mm -hmm. which is occulted so in that sense what the hidden part of it is is the idea that really sort of two things one that there is hidden knowledge that there is some body of knowledge which is there but which it is concealed and therefore one of the things that an occultist is generally trying to do is to access that knowledge that's the thing is yeah is is that is that uh, there's also the hidden world the knowledge is connected to that and the simplest way to think of it maybe is is the concept that underlies most occultism is that the world that we perceive through our senses is only part of a larger world which can only be accessed through means such as ritual or through mediumship or by other sort of weird things. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's actually kind of fascinating because we, you know, now generally as a society, we hear the word occult and uh, 
it conjures all sorts of um, images of ritual practices and um, uh, all sorts pagan, of bad things. Yeah, pagan religions and generally kind of, I guess, negative connotations. Um, but but you saying and, and defining it like that says that really uh, someone who studies occult things is just studying knowledge that may not be accessible to everyone or anyone at the time. Yeah, I mean, the popular conception of his occultism, to boil it down most simply, is it has to do with devil worshippers. I mean, that's <laughs> that's what we made. You know, when do you start worshipping the devil? Okay, so, and, and there are those who, that argue that occultism and Satanism are basically synonymous. And, you know, devil worship in one form or another can be a part of that. But it's only a part of a much larger thing. And keep in mind, I'm not trying to defend occultism, and I'm not trying to attack it. I'm just trying to describe what it is. On an academic <laughs> level. Yes. All right. Absolutely. And that's, and that's all we expect. So. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and as a kind of general disclaimer, um, I'm not a practitioner of the occult. <laughs> So just I, okay. So, but you know, then I guess if I was, I might say that I wasn't. But I, I actually not. I mean, it's one of those things that interests me. Lots of things interest me. For instance, you know, as a military historian, war interests me. Although it's not really necessarily something I'd want to be part of. You know, I'd Absolutely. rather read about it than do it. Right. Yes, for sure. Um, so that that being said, um, what would you would you just define like the early. Uh, say Victorian age uh, interest in spiritualism uh, and things like that uh, would you consider that kind of of an occult nature because that wasn't necessarily uh, the worship of Satan or uh, even other deities it was just uh, a, a, a people trying to uh, establish ways to I guess speak to the dead amongst other things yeah well you know speaking to the dead, if you think of it, is accessing a larger world. You know, there's some sort of greater universe and the dead are out there. Uh, and that by talking to them, you can access the knowledge or information that they have. So I bet one of the things that, that a lot of your, of your uh, listeners have probably done, some of them at least, is they've used the Ouija board. Oh, yeah. All right, there you go. All right. So, and that's one of those things that while it's kind of the low end of the speed spectrum of occultism, it, it nevertheless falls into it because what are you trying to do with the board? Mm. You're trying to gain information and you're trying to gain information from some sort of spiritual sources, which you're never convinced to actually exist. And you think the other friend of yours is pushing it, but you're not entirely sure of that either. So <laughs> there you go. I actually have never seriously attempted to use a Ouija. I was going to say but, we've uh, used one at one point. Uh, yeah, it was not. That was, that was very much faked. Yeah, it was. We deliberately faked it. But yeah, it's. Uh, it. Uh, when I was a kid, when I was a, I want to say a kid, when I was in high school, which is a you know source of all kinds of trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, I did have a group of friends and I, and we did get into using a Ouija board pretty seriously for a fairly long period of time. I mean, you know, for months or a year or so, we were kind of regular users of it. And uh, that was one of those things that in some ways was kind of my first introduction to that sort of thing. And I was going to ask, how did you end up finding this interest in particular? Well, it wasn't because of that. Um, I mean, I, looking back on it, I think that's one of the things that kind of a, a sort of uh, awoke my my kind of awareness of this sort of thing. Uh, the experiences that we had, you know, using it back in, you know, as uh, as a bunch of, you know, over enthusiastic high school kids, I say was, you know, for the most part harmless and the type of thing you would expect high school kids to do. But then at some point, it got creepy. <laughs> yes, as as such and, things tend to do, and and it got quite creepy, and it's one of the things that has really put me off Ouija boards. <laughs> so I, I really like uh, being around them uh, to to any particular extent, and I'll just pass that off to a kind of personal aversion. But uh, there there were some things that were you know authentically sort of creepy and unpleasant that that came up, but that was something that. You know, later on, when you go into academia, academia, and you do the rest, what 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 sort of brought me into the academic study of occultism was basically one of the things you find, you know, at least I've found as an historian, is that your interests mutate over time because one thing leads you to another. 
Absolutely. So again, my interest in interest here's something. Very interested in the Russian Revolution. Okay, that's a big thing. So if you really know what the sort of thing that I'm really interested in is everything connected to the Russian Revolution. And when you look at the Russian Revolution, you look at, well, you look at politics, but the other thing you look at is conspiracy, because you don't have revolutions without conspiracies. That just doesn't happen. If you're not conspiring, you're dead. So, and what do you have conspiracy? If you, since as the real history of secret societies, I repeat over and over again, uh, one of the perfect mechanisms to fuel that is a secret society. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the, so that's what, as I began to study something like the Russian Revolution, the period modern history, I would run across political movements, the revolutionary movements that dealt with conspiracy. And then I would begin to find these links between people that I couldn't explain until I figured out that they belong to the same sort of secret societies. And once you began delving into that, then, you know, you run across people like, oh, Aleister Crowley, you know, mm-hmm. he pops up. Um, so the, the whole, my interest, even though I said we weren't going to go into him, but I just say that one of the things that drew me to him is that I'm, I'm interested this whole sort of secret world out there. Uh, in, in history, one of the components of it is espionage. So another thing I'm kind of fascinated with, much more really than they call are spies. I'm always looking for spies. Well, and that's always and, a fascinating subject too. We could and, do a whole other podcast on them. <laughs> well, you, you, you tend to find them in places where you wouldn't expect them. But, mm-hmm. um, but uh, Crowley was one of the first places where I came across someone who was, you know, he's, he's kind of, I would say, well, not kind of, he is the premier occultist of the 20th century. I mean, if you talk about modern occultism in some way, everybody, rightly or wrongly, claims some connection to Aleister Crowley. But he was also on and off, and this is what I discuss in my book, Secret Agent 666, an agent for British intelligence. Which is interesting, for sure. Which which is, it, it makes much more sense when you begin to combine different elements together. You can see how these two things, and it was one of the things that I found again and again. So, for instance, have you um, ever heard of a guy by the name of John Whiteside Parsons? The name is familiar. Uh, I'm not terribly familiar, but uh, he's come up in many of the different things that I've read. (laughs) Yeah, he's, um, for the uninitiated out there, John Whiteside Parsons, better known as Jack Parsons, Mm -hmm. is really two things. He is, um, on the one hand, he's one of the, the daddies of the American space program, really. He's yes, the guy who, who um, during World War II, developed the solid-fuel rocket engine, jet assist to takeoff. Uh, he was one of the founders of Aerojet. He's one of the founders of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, and he still has a statue there, unless they've torn it down. Mm, I don't think they have, so, but I, I, I so am aware of that. I don't, I, don't I don't think they have either, but <laughs> There was apparently some people some years ago were threatening to steal it, so I just never know it was it's there. <laughs> I don't want to send someone there; they'll be disappointed because there's no statue. Yeah. But yeah, he's 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 a big you know he's a big figure on that level. But on the other hand, at the same time he's doing this, I mean that was his day job. Mm-hmm. Inventing rocket engines was his day job. But what he did otherwise was that he was a practicing follower of Aleister Crowley and a dedicated occultist. And they had corresponded quite frequently uh, yeah. in the time that they'd been alive, I believe. Uh, they were in, well, Crowley dies in 47. Uh, Parsons dies quite young in a, an explosion in 1952. But yes, they did correspond. Uh, and for a while, Crowley, tend, you know, Crowley's always looking for some kind of successor or someone he could sort of pass the baton to. And I think for a, a hot minute or so, he thought that uh, Jack Parsons might be the guy, but... Uh, disappointments ensued but another person that jack parsons briefly collaborated within occult rituals was a guy that i bet everybody's heard of l ron hubbard (laughs) yes and and that again was a relationship that did not end well uh at least for parsons in this case but so parsons was yeah sorry to interrupt they they and uh they fought over a woman is that correct uh well it wasn't any that went on. Uh, Jack Parsons had a very, I guess what we'd call today, open relationship view towards relationships. And so when his new buddy, uh, Lafayette Ronald Hubbard, sort of moved into the sort of crash pad that Parsons was running, uh, Hubbard sort of uh, took over Jack Parsons' girlfriend and then ran off with his money. <laughs> there you go. That's right. Yeah. That's how that, that's how that ran out. 
Uh, but that was that, okay. They called that crash pad the Parsonage, right? The, the Parsonage, yes. It was a a mansion which Parsons rented uh, in Pasadena. He'd grown up in a house very much like that. And he was just a place, you know, I don't think the term crash pad was around uh, in the late 40s <laughs> or early 50s. But that's, it, it was a, a sort of boarding house that he would rent places out to people that he just liked. And those were a combination generally of occultists and scientists and engineers. It was a very interesting mix of people. But here's the other thing that I think is interesting about Jack Parsons. I think there's a third side to him. And the third side, along with being a practicing occultist and a rocket scientist, was that I suspect he was a spy. And I in particular suspect that he was a spy for the uh, late and unlamented USSR. Interesting. So he would have been uh, a traitor to his country, as it were, in that case. Well, I mean, you know, patriotism, as a you know regular sense, I don't think ranked very high on Jack Parsons' you know, <laughs> level. That wasn't something. I mean, there was this actually came out of a of a of a conversation, sort of like what we're having with, with a friend of mine who's you know interested in some of the same subjects I am. One of them being espionage, and so. There had been this, what we were doing is we were just sitting around and we were kind of spitballing and throwing back and forth. Well, you know, if, if Jack Parsons was a Soviet spy, how exactly would that have worked? And I think we, we both started out trying to disprove the notion of saying, well, this wouldn't work for that reason. And by the time we were done, it was sort of like, well, you know, actually, it looks a lot more probable than we thought it was. Um, I mean, he was a member of the Communist Party. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um he was he was part of a um, oh, what was called a, a discussion group, a party led discussion group. That part of its purpose was to recruit people. Uh, you know, one of the things the Soviets were very very interested in, and we're talking about uh, the end of World War well, actually just before and during World War II and after, was any kind of scientific espionage, and therefore recruiting people at a place like JPL was something that they would not pass up. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think, I don't know how sincere of a spy he may have been, but uh, I'm reasonably convinced that that is, at the very least, a strong possibility. Well, that's by, very by, interesting. Yeah. And uh, do, do you find uh, this correlation often, uh, individuals who dabble or, or are practitioners of the occult and also end up somehow in espionage? Yes. In fact, way too often. <laughs> it's one of those things that, you know, I, I thought it's one of those things, you know, Aleister Crowley is not a one-off. And to a certain extent, it makes sense. And it, it makes sense because there are certain, there are certain practical skills that one would develop as an occultist that are translatable to espionage. And really what it's all about, remember I said that Part of what an occultist is after is discovering secrets, is Absolutely. discovering knowledge. Yes. Well, what is a spy basically after? Absolutely what, what, that. <laughs> and, and the other side of that is the, the way to keep secrets. And it's, um, you know, again, if you, you probably know the, the lectures on secret societies, one of the things that they, they always make a big deal about, doesn't always work out that way, is secrecy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the reasons one of the reasons is a secret society is not because its existence is a secret. It's what goes on inside that is supposed to be a secret. Absolutely. I think you you said uh, in the in the lectures, you said that there are not so much so- secret societies as societies with secrets. Yeah. Yeah. That's a much better way to describe most of them. Yeah, almost all of them, I would I would say, um, which has always kind of been an interesting thing to me because you find a lot in those secret societies that not only are there many people um, of power and influence uh, that end up, end up in those, but there's also quite a, a lot of, of that ritualism and occultism found through many secret societies. And so uh, they're almost synonymous. Yeah, one of the things that simply studying something like looking at it from the outside, you know, treating it like a bug under a microscope, which isn't exactly the way I treat these things, but it's one way you could describe it, is that you begin, one of the things that's very important in occultism and in secret societies, in, in a way of sort of disguising information or keeping secrets, is that you turn 
information into symbols. You you try to really communicate symbolically. Mm-hmm. And, and allegorically, I would say maybe. Yeah, and, and allegories are used. And so it's it's one thing to you know, I mean we could we can pick the most obvious examples, you know, the the you know McDonald's of secret societies. The Freemasons? Uh, yeah, the Freemasons, right? <laughs> and they, they're, they're very, very successful. And, you know, one of the things I make is that lots of people use that name. Nobody owns the rights to it, so it can mean different things in different circumstances. But, again, Freemasonry makes a very, you know, secrecy is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, reality of it is, is their rituals have always pretty well been known, because there were always people who talked about them, and you can go on the web and you can find all of this. But, what you can't find, you can get a description of the rituals, but what a, what a straightforward description of whether it's a Masonic or any other type of ritual won't tell you is what it means. Yes. That's, that's the thing to the outsider that is often confusing or misleading or just completely nonsensical is that you have no idea what the meaning of these things are. And, and that's, that's where the real secret is, in the allegorical, symbolic meaning of actions or words that to someone, you know, to the profane, that is to someone outside of that organization or the initiation, just really seems to make no particular sense at all. And that's what it's intended to be. And it is it is very interesting, even even from the outside looking in. And uh, I I was very briefly an an initiated Freemason when I was much younger, um, and I didn't make it very far. Uh, I lost interest fairly quickly. But uh, it's definitely a very strange experience to be brought in to that initiation and have them explain everything in the allegories and the symbols and the the very actions and the steps you take and all that is is uh is very interesting to say the least. <laughs> yeah, I think part of the question that would that would go through your mind um is is how seriously am I supposed to take this? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, are we just kind of playing around or is this really deadly serious? And see the thing is is that sometimes it's one or the other. Yes. Um Definitely some secret societies or organizations are much more serious about those things than uh, than than other ones might be. But it's uh, it's all sort of in the the heart of the believer and the eye of the beholder. Well, that's what makes it that's what makes it creepy and mysterious. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so if you if you had to pick one that interested you the most, what would be uh, the most interesting of the secret societies to you? Well, you know. That's always a tough question for me to answer because I'm asking, you know, like, what's your favorite book or what's your favorite movie? Yeah. Uh, I don't, honestly, I don't really have one. I, I like lots of them. But if I was to pick, if I was going to pick a secret society that I think really mystifies me, um, it's a thing called the Green Dragon Society. I have not heard of that. And there, there is one of the lectures that goes into the green dragons and the black dragons, and and those are two very different things. And they're they're basically Asian, Chinese, or Japanese secret societies, supposedly. And the, and the the black dragon society is something that's pretty obvious. It's a it's a nationalist sort of militant terrorist. Now they carried out assassinations, and and they also were involved in espionage. Um, and really became a kind of adjunct of Japanese militarism. Interesting. But the, but the Green Dragon Society, which is sometimes discussed almost in the same breath with the Black Dragon Society, is it's another breed of cat entirely. And it's one of those. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask: Are they like a counter society to the Black Dragon Society? Or well, I mean, that's the question. I mean, how many different colored dragon societies do you need? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> all the dragons, really. What, 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 and, what, and why? And why? So, I mean, this is this is a type of thing about again the, the symbolism and the allegory. And I mean, there's a particular reason why it's a green dragon society. Mm-hmm. So, this is one of the things you can assume if some sort of secret organization or cult order has decided that they're going to call themselves the Green Dragon Society, they have in some way excluded blue, puce, purple, red. So green has some particular significance to them. Mm-hmm. But it's a significance that otherwise isn't apparent outside of that. The Green Dragon Society is one of those things that exists sort of on the edge 
of fantasy and reality. I mean, there there are legitimate references to it. There was some kind of organization with that name, but pinning down exactly what it was and what its relationship to other things are is that that's the part that's that's uh, really mysterious. Josh, I was just going to bring up that he was just talking about the uh, the Black Dragon Society, and I can think of a certain fictitious organization that really kind of sounds like that. Do, would you be able to guess which one I'm thinking of? No. I was thinking the League of Shadows. Oh, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I can see that. That's, that's kind of what they sound like to me. Yeah, um, I can see that. I, I actually thought, like, it sounds familiar, like the black and green dragon societies, but I could just be thinking of stuff like that. So, well, uh, are you aware if they've made? Uh, sorry, uh, uh, Rick, have, are, are you aware if they have made um, any kind of appearance or influence on pop culture? Well, there was a movie at the beginning of World War II. There was an American movie that came out right after Pearl Harbor, which is called uh, "The Black Dragons" or "Mask of the Black Dragon." Mm. I think it actually I think it actually has Bella Lugosi in there somewhere. Oh really? So wow. it's so it's it was a the, the Black Dragons unlike the Green Dragon the Black Dragon Society was was semi public. Oh really? Beca- okay. Because it it functioned as a ostensibly as a Japanese nationalist organization. So one of the things so at the beginning of World War II, uh one of the things is that there are these FBI raids all over the West Coast in San Francisco and in Texas. Lodi, and they're basically raids on Japanese gambling parlors. Uh, but one of the things which is mentioned in the press reports of this is what they're looking for are people who are agents of the, you know, what they call the Insidious Black Dragon Society. And you know, and it sounds very, dare I say, Fu Manchuish. A little, uh, but 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 nevertheless, the, the Black Dragon, you know, the, the FBI wasn't hallucinating the Black Dragon Society. They might have. I don't know whether they actually found any members of it in a you know Japanese gambling hall at Lodi. I was about but, to say, uh, wait, something yeah. interesting happened in Lodi. In oh. Lodi, yes, Lodi was there was apparently the, who knew there was a Japanese gambling hall there. <laughs> I did, but see this. See, this is it. You know, when you study things like uh, secret societies and occultism, suddenly you find out there are all kinds of interesting things that were going on in places you didn't think there would be. Absolutely, yeah, that's crazy. Um, Anyone who's but, been through Lodi wouldn't think that. Hey, but yeah, CCO they, they were, wrote about them. They wrote yes. about Lodi. <laughs> I, I I spent a very long afternoon. In Lodi. But anyway, <laughs> and I wouldn't go back. Uh, oh, but then I'm no. from I'm from the San Joaquin Valley, so I'm from further south than there. But you know, it's my grandma used to live in Lodi. We're all from California here, so. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Yep. So that's you know the the other California, the place that is not the Bay Area and isn't Los Angeles and not San Diego. Yep, it's just you know almond groves and sweat. Yep, <laughs> that's fairly accurate. So, <laughs> so um, you know, you can find things. There was one of you know I said the the, the Green Dragon Society sort of exists on this edge of reality. One of the few things that actually ties it to reality, I'll give you an example, is that there was uh, Chiang Kai-shek was a Chinese dictator. All right. He was the guy who used to run China before the communists came along. Uh-huh. And so he was, you know, started out as an ambitious nationalist general who took money from lots of people. His early wives in her memoir says that, yes, Chiang took money from the Black Dragon and Green Dragon societies. Oh, so the thing about that, I mean, this that seems like a, a tiny little thing, but, but to an historian, this is why it's important, because you've got this person who's referencing these two things as separate from each other. So the idea, so to her, the black dragons and the green dragons were clearly two different things. She doesn't say how, but that's one of those things that goes against the idea that others had brought up that, well, you know, the Green Dragon Society is just somebody sort of acid trip version of the Black Dragons. All right. Oh, that, that, they, they, they just got them confused. But you do run across her statement and others that clearly say, no, they're, they're two different things. Now, is, her, is hers the first mention of them being separate entities? It was Well, it's the first one I came across. Um, uh, there are other ones. 
there's a French sort of esotericist, which is a nice word for occultist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the name of if you don't want to call yourself an occultist, just call yourself an esotericist. Uh, I like it. And he's a very interesting guy by the name of Rene Guénon. His last mm-hmm. name is G U E N O N. But Rene Guénon uh, also took some interest in uh, in Asian secret societies and. Um, uh, and and distinguished that there were two different organizations, the Black Dragon being more political and basically the Green Dragons being more esoteric, more in the mystical end of things. So they may have been more into the actual occult portion of the, the whole thing. Well, I mean, here's here's one theory. OK, and remember, a theory is just, you know. A guess, yeah, an, edu- an, 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 an educated guess. Yes. It, it's, it's a possibility. So one theory is that the Black Dragons were a kind of straight-ahead, political, nationalist, terrorist organization. I mean, they wanted to pursue Japanese imperial ambitions in Asia and elsewhere, and they did that through, you know, everything from murder to gambling. I mean, they, they, had a, they did have a relationship, by the way, with the Yakuza. Oh, I, uh, and that, that, that's why you tended to find them linked to things like brothels and gambling halls, because their alliance with the gangsters brought in money. For sure, yeah. And the Yakuza, of course, is still active today. So Right. And what they gave is that because the Black Dragons were closely connected to the military and people in government, they provided the criminals with protection. Now, the Yakuza itself has its own almost kind of secret society-esque elements to it at least from what i understand including some some maybe um occult type rituals and 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 initiations and things that are that are part of it but i don't know if, i'm not an expert by any means that's just what i've heard <laughs> but they they definitely do i mean the the whole thing with uh, i mean something else i go into in the in the lectures is um there's one on criminal secret societies because basically any criminal organization on some level, has to be a secret society. By its nature, yeah. And, and keep in mind, it has to be an occult society since you're hiding part of what you do. Yeah. Uh, so in this case, think of think of how important things like uh, initiations and secrecy is to the mafia. Absolutely, yeah. Okay? And take a look. You can find these in movies and elsewhere at a mafia initiation and tell me that ain't an occult ritual. It absolutely is. Yeah, I agree. And So... And- the, the, that's how these things constantly wash. I mean, this is where you find secret societies and occultism in places you wouldn't think it was there. Or another, look at Mexican drug cartels. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That Lots is of just practitioners a, of like Santeria and stuff in those in those Santeria, areas. the the great importance, you know, patron saint uh, of of the of the of the drug cartels is is Santa Muerte, is Holy yeah. Death. Yeah. Which is not a regular Catholic saint. Keep in mind. No, I, that's what I had heard. That it is not at all. It's kind of a, a, a what would they call it? A uh, um, an amalgamation of many different things uh, put together into one being. One, one idea is it's made based upon you know Aztec or Mexican or, or other sort of native Mexican traditions. That might be true. It's basically the worship of of death as a kind of feminine deity. Mm-hmm. And and one of the reasons why the cartels are so focused upon that is that what it is that you pray to this deity for is is protection from the very thing that she represents, which is death. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a dangerous job. Being a cartelista is apparently, you know, fairly hazardous. And yeah, I think so. <laughs> so if you can somehow appease death herself, <laughs> that's that's one way, you know, of, of lasting longer and being able to... Uh, Spend all your ill-gotten gains, but no. If you look, you look at criminal organizations; they're they're constantly awash. And you look at all the superstitions that go along with that, and and the, the elements of secrecy. Uh, it's 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 all part of that larger picture. Absolutely, they, I've I've heard of thing something called, um, which might not be necessarily a cult, but one of the things that's that's very prominent in. Uh, the Italian mafia, especially the Sicilian parts of it, is something called the Omerta Code, um, which has always been kind of fascinating to me. Is this this idea of of a different sort of law, um, and and I feel like that can kind of um, wrap itself into the the occult practices that end up in there, is because they have to define 
their own virtues and values. And if you're going to try to instill those in future generations, you need some sorts of rituals and allegories and symbols. At least that's what I think. Yeah, the, the basis of Omerta is, is silence. It's, it's the vow that you never talk. We yeah. never betray the organization. And as long as something like that works, um, it's not foolproof, but it's pretty close. Yeah. I mean, if, if people are, this is, you know, the importance of, you know, of Omerta, of, of the code of silence, uh, that you never rat, that that is the worst thing you can possibly do. Uh, and that, uh, you know, you, you're a stand-up guy. If you, if you do your time, you do your time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you go to prison, you do the time, you keep your mouth shut, and then, you know, presumably you, you or any family members will be taken care of on the outside. And that's but the that's most how, important thing. Yes, and that's, that's how you do it. And once people start talking, once that code breaks down, uh, which has happened in recent decades with the mafia, then the organization comes apart. Yeah. And you're right. It has, it has definitely. And I, I feel like that almost could fit with, within the world of espionage as well. Um, just because if somebody talks, then you you could be completely screwed if you're who they're talking about, or even associated with anyone they're talking about. Well, there's there's a, a saying, you know, there are lots of sayings supposedly connected to intelligence, but but one of them is that you know if you find yourself, you know, if you're caught, if someone's drug you into an interrogation room, uh, what you do is you deny everything. I once had a cat that said that. Um, and, and, and you, and you deny everything, you admit nothing and you make counter accusations. Oh, interesting. That's the way you do it. Now, it, at first it sounds like denying everything and admitting nothing is kind of redundant, but actually they're, they're slightly different. So the fact is, is that if you're charged with it, you know, if you're said, well, you know, are you a spy? Are you an American spy? Well, you deny that, but then go, you know, but you admit that you don't admit anything. You just flat out don't even if you're presented you you do you deny you deny you deny and uh, and you try to cast doubt on everything by making counter accusations. Well, no, I didn't do this. Someone else has done this. I've been framed, right? Someone else is. I, I am I am the victim here. Now, what it is is once you keep those ideas in mind, I want you to see how much in terms of things in the news or in politics or elsewhere that is used. <laughs> I, for a while. Absolutely, okay. yeah. All right. Um, or the, the other one you'll run across is that it's not true, it's not true, it's not true. Well, it is true, but it doesn't matter. That's one we're running into a lot recently. Yes, okay. So. That one comes up a lot. So you you hang in there, you will deny, 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 until basically you look like a complete idiot for denying it, and then you just argue that it's irrelevant. Yeah. Well, yeah, I did this, so what? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's too real. <laughs> and and it, it does, uh, it, it works It works amazingly well, but all of that, again, is to, is to disguise. I mean, the other thing that goes along with, you know, to a certain degree, one of the things I figured out, spies, is to be a, you know, a really good sort of operative spy, you have to be a good con man. I would think so, yeah. <laughs> and, and you have to never give up the con. You have to stick with that, no matter what. You have to you have to stay in character, and then that's the other thing that's brought into it is that uh, there's always this element of acting which mm-hmm. is involved. So it's a um, there's a guy that I'm interested in right now. The thing that I'm sort of working on now, which I, I again is one of these things that I just got drawn into through something else, is there's a character by the name of George Hunt Williamson. Mm-hmm. And if anybody goes out and Googles that name, it will pop up. And one of the things that he did in the 1950s is that he wrote a whole series of books about UFOs. He's one of the, he's one of the first sort of contactees. Uh-huh. So George Adamski, George Van Tassel, and, and, and they're all named George. And, and George Hunt Williamson uh, is one of them. And I became interested in him not because, just to make this clear, I'm particularly interested in flying saucers. Um, in fact, the more I've actually looked at the topic, the less I believe in them. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're kind of on the same page there. Uh, you know, there's it, it's just there's so much just flim flammery and fakery involved, and most mm-hmm. of it's not even very good fakery. Yes, I, I you know I, I you know I, I, I the question I don't the thing is is that there's there's clearly some sort of phenomenon. Here yes. again, this is this is what interests me. There's a phenomenon. People believe in this. Movements are founded. People must see something. I mean, I've come across that. You know, I, I've I've never seen anything like that, but I've known very reliable people who said that they've experienced something strange. 
then to immediately leap to the conclusion that that's a spaceman, <laughs> uh, that, that, that's often kind of a big leap. But not Williamson, that, that really sort of intrigued me about him, isn't the sort of, sort of flying saucer angle. The thing about Williamson is that he's also very clearly an occultist. Interesting. And the reason he's clearly an occultist is that because he and almost all of the early figures, if you go back and look at these early sort of UFO contacts, it's they're essentially doing this by channeling. They're doing it as mediums. Really? They're making psychic contact. So Williamson's whole thing was that he would admit, I've never been in a flying saucer. I've never actually met a space person, but I communicate with them through, I, I channel them. Psychically. Yes. So it's spirit communication. It's just, it's just another form of spiritualism. And, and so he, so the question then becomes, if, if that's the way he says that he has communicated and learned information about extraterrestrials or, or, or extra dimensional beings or whatever he wants to call them, doesn't that kind of shred his credibility if he's if he's leaning on that as his as his uh, basis for all of this? Well, uh, it might to you or I, but it doesn't to other people. And the thing is, is that it's a. Um, I mean, this is another thing, again, you can find through looking at occultism or secret societies, and I'm not trying to be that flippant about it, but in some cases, you'll figure out that people aren't that hard to con. No, they are not. See, see that's that's one of the things that, that I have to wonder. It's, it's a, you know, again, it's a theory. One explanation for this is that what's going on here are simply a series of cons. Mm -hmm. uh, although I have to admit, in many cases, I you know, usually a con is to, you know, the, the con artist is looking to enrich themselves. And in many of these cases, I can't see that anybody's making any money off of it. Um, of course, there are other forms of satisfaction besides money, like yeah. ego satisfaction. I think, I think, for instance, uh, sorry to interrupt. I think, for instance, a really good example of that, um, nece not necessarily monetarily right away, but just because of the amount of, of attention, a good example of that would be Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are very famous uh, paranormal investigators. They kind of almost pioneered the paranormal investigation field as we know it now. I think they were for sure con artists. I don't know that they necessarily started out that way in their own minds, but I think that's what they ended up. And I think, as you were saying, um, it didn't necessarily start as a form of, of direct uh, material enrichment, but they definitely enjoyed the attention and the spotlight. Yeah, one of the things about Williamson that, you know, playing pop psychologist, which you do, whenever you try to study a person, that's inevitably what you're doing, even though I have no degree. I don't even know if it works. But nevertheless, is that he really liked attention. Because the other thing he does is that he, he invents, uh, I really thought this was a full string of academic credentials. <laughs> oh, really? I mean, I mean, He's he's claims to have degrees from places that either don't exist. Usually, they do exist. They're just not real universities. <laughs> and, and it's always it's always kind of interesting, you know, when he says that. Well, I have a I, I'm the chair of the anthropology department at Great Western University. Well, that sounds pretty impressive. And then you try to figure out what Great Western University is, and what you find out is that a Great Western University is basically a kind of mail order mysticism school, oh. all right? Run, you know, run by uh, occultists, you know, basically offering you know the mail order courses in, uh, you know, things like extraterrestrial extraterrestrial communication. I don't know where else you can get a course on that. <laughs> but but it was, and in other words, it's, it was essentially a school, a mystical school that was set up in San Francisco. Uh, used the name Great. They had offices. Somebody said they had offices above a massage parlor. I'm not sure if that's true. <laughs> but uh, today, their offices are above a nail salon. I know that. But so they still exist. Uh, they don't exist in San Francisco. They does. It still exists, but it's changed its name to something. Oh order but it's it's you know it, it's it's now become much more mystical new agey buddhist so they, they've uh, they've kind of shed the uh um veneer of um academia and decided uh, to just lean uh, into it 
Yes, of actually trying to pretend to be any kind of university. And, you know, as, as far as I've been able to tell, I mean, did they offer degrees? Probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> Doesn't mean they'd be any good. <laughs> but, but no, they weren't. I don't, were they real degrees? Well, you know, I, I would say no. But that, but that was the type of thing that Williams, and it's just, it's full, or, or if he claimed to actually have a degree from someplace like the University of Florida, um, they've never heard of him. All right. Interesting. So he was a, um, here's one of the things that makes these kind of people interesting is that they're liars. All right. I mean, you can put it any other way, but this is a guy who just consistently lied his way through life. Uh-huh. And would invent things about himself. And then at one point, sort of just becomes a completely different person. Interesting. And, and, and claims to be the heir to the throne of Serbia. All right. And that, that just comes out of left field. And But he completely, and he drops, he, he ceases to be George Hunt Williamson. And he becomes this person called Michelle Deobrenovich. Oh. Yes. And okay. He just, and he just came up with that on his own? There was no previous person called this? Well, there's a whole di- – there actually is a Serbian dynasty called Obrenovic, but it has absolutely nothing to do with him. So he just – he created this persona himself. His, his – well, he claims that his mother created the persona. Oh. And, and he seems at some point on her to write out a, an affidavit that she filed with a court in Arizona, which said that when I was 12 years old, my older sister told me that we were descended from the kings of Serbia and yada, yada, yada. yada. All uh-huh. right. And she wrote this. I, I'm I'm quite sure. In fact, I I'm positive. I'd bet the farm of the fact that he that he persuaded his mom to come up with this story. <laughs> but then what he did with it is interesting. He's got this. So you know he's 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 traveling around. He, he's and this is another interesting where he gets his money to travel. But he's flying back and forth to you from the you know America to England and whatnot. And so here's one of the interesting things I discovered about this guy. He, over a two-year period, over a span of roughly 24 months, he returns to the United States from abroad on one passport, because the passport has the same number on all three trips, Mm. but he returns under three different names. Oh. Now, how did he manage that? One person making three returns to the U.S. on the same passport with three different names. It is an interesting trick. And see, that's really, that's the type of thing that really made me curious because I wanted to figure out not only how he did that, but I wanted to know why he did it. See, because he's hiding something. And the one thing when you begin to look at it is that for a period of time in England where he's living, He's Michelle de Obrenovich. That's where he first uses this name. In England. Right. And then he flies back into LaGuardia Airport, and his ticket apparently was in that name. But then he resumes speaking to American audiences as George Hunt Williamson. Then he flies back to Europe, and he's Dobrenovich again. Hmm. Um, and I might add that neither one of those names are actually his real name. Oh, okay. it's not the name. His real name is George Leonard Williamson Jr. <laughs> George Leonard Williamson Jr. George, George Leonard Williamson Jr. And his dad was George Leonard Williamson Sr., which I think maybe is part of the reason he started using. His dad was also a cop, oh. which he may have wanted to distance himself from from dad, the cop. Uh, I, sus- I suspect there's also more family dynamics going on there. But um, it almost have to be. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, you know, that's often the case. It's not always the case, but you want to figure out what's wrong with people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm putting quotes around wrong, but if you yeah, want to yeah. figure out what, what their thing is, just go back and, you know, look, look, at, uh, look at the family. That will generally tell you something. Absolutely. But he's, uh, he's this interesting character. What he would do, what I think he did with that affidavit is that when he went to England, he, he went in, and one of the things you can do, you know, let, let's say you're a performer. And you, you have a stage name and you have your real name. Lots of people do. And therefore, in traveling, you can you generally have to get a passport. You have to produce a birth certificate, which means that in this guy's case, he would have had to have produced a birth certificate. And the only one he's got is as George Leonard Williamson, Jr. Yes. So that's what the passport would have been issued to. But he could say that according to my mother's affidavit, we are descended from this royal line, and I am assuming this name for professional purposes 
And therefore, can I get an endorsement on my passport that will say that this is an AKA? This isn't a name I'm also known as. And that, I think, is how he could purchase a ticket and travel in a name, even though he's carrying a passport, which is not, I'm not sure you could get away with that today. I, I wouldn't think so. Uh, it would be, I, you probably get a lot more questions about it, but uh, he does, uh, I mean, I, you know, and in fact, in the, the, the third occasion where he came in, he's actually using his birth name. He comes in, George Leonard Williamson Jr., and he does that when he's flying in from Mexico. <laughs> so these are three separate trips and under the same passport that he, that he comes in under three different aliases. Under, under three different names, only one of which is actually his real name which he otherwise never uses. So uh, that was that's a, a peculiar circumstance. Uh, but see, there's other things about him. Of course, you know, knowing that it's me, I begin to suspect that, yeah, does this guy have some sort of intelligence connections? Yeah, that's because, what I was thinking. Because, uh, and then you look at things like his military service. So another sort of weird thing about him, uh, he is a U.S. Army lieutenant for 38 days. Oh, now that's almost... Uh, now, my uh, hearing that, my initial thought is is that he simply did it so that he could say that he was a lieutenant, and there'd be paper to back that up. Yeah, so that somewhere he could. I got his, you know, his DD two fourteen, which is his separation papers, and and he he actually has he has two periods of military service. One at the very he was a sergeant. Uh -huh. Okay, doesn't seem to have done much of anything. Uh, except the interesting thing about him is you figure out what his MOS was when he was a sergeant, his, oh. his military occupation. He was, uh, I think it was a 270, 274, which then meant that he was a writer on military topics. Oh, so he was a kind of a, uh, a journalist for the military. Kind of. The other way, actually, that, that's the, the MOS description, but the way it's actually written on, on his separation papers is that he was an information specialist. Hmm. So that's always kind of interesting. You have a guy who's military as an information specialist, as a writer uh -huh. on assigned military topics, who then becomes basically what professionally? A writer writing about what? UFOs. Huh. I, I just, I, you know, that's, that's a little, it's a curious thing. He also, by the way, had uh, experience in high school and college as an actor. He was in lots of drama productions. Hmm. And uh, which in some ways, if you look at the latter, his latter part of his life, it's like he's playing different roles. He invents different parts for himself yeah, and, and, and begins to play it. No, he was yeah, in, in 1949. There was a special program. This, this took some digging to figure this out. It was a thing called Circular 330. And the army thought that they were short of second lieutenants. Apparently, they had enough colonels, generals, but they didn't have enough people at the bottom end. And so they looked around for people who were in college that didn't like being in college, literally. <laughs> and, they, and they said, that, look, instead of going to college, we'll just make you a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army. And, and they did. I mean, they got it like that. It wasn't like they were an officer candidate. The, you, you know, you went in, you had a physical, some sort of board looked over your paperwork. And, you know, basically, like, if you were in college, if you have very lieutenant. Now the only thing you have to do is you have to go to Fort Benning for a special training course and pass it. Uh, and he didn't pay. He didn't fail the course. He just didn't complete it. And then 38 days into this, he's just released from active duty. And I've never run across anything. I've looked at, you know, a fair number of other military records in that period. And I talked to people about this and never seen anything quite like that. And, and there doesn't seem to be any reasoning why he was released from active duty? Well, no, there's no clear reason. There were there, there are sort of three, a series of different causes that you could be relieved from active duty under Circular 330. One of them was, you know, failure of leadership. Um, one of them was, you know, academic failure, neither of which seemed to apply to him. And then, of course, there's the other, other reasons. <laughs> and, his, and, and his is other reasons. Well, it was health gotten a medical discharge oh i see okay but he simply sort of detached for undescribed other reasons interesting and so then how does how does an individual who, who travels the world under different aliases and has a, a a short military history how does he end up writing about ufos where's that where does that bridge come in well 
his story was that they started using, wait for this, a Ouija board. <laughs> uh, we've come full circle, back to the yes. old Ouija board. Yes. So he started out with a Ouija board, and apparently, I don't know, you know, extraterrestrial intelligences began communicating through a Ouija board, and then they moved on from that to shortwave radio. Okay. He's very inconsistent, and 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 then the, he had they were listening to these these Morse code broadcasts because aliens communicate in Morse code. As well, for sure, yeah. Why not? Why not? They could, and and then he just went on. The quicker way to do it for it was just for him to go into a trance and start speaking in voices and writing stuff down. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it doesn't get any easier than that. So again, that all sounds you know fairly occultish. Yeah. But it's not just him. I mean, if you look at almost all of the earlier, I mean, if you basically look at the whole description of sort of early UFO contacts, you know, but before the, you know, this is like before the whole sort of big headed gray alien anal probers come along. <laughs> okay. But before that, they were all sweetness and light. You know, they were all like blonde Venusians. They were these perfectly formed men and women. Uh, with suspiciously perfectly Aryan features, apparently. I've seen but some of these Star Trek episodes like that. You know. Yeah, and and they always and they why were they here? Because they want to help us. We are just these poor, benighted, spiritually inferior beings, and they have all this cool secret knowledge, not to mention cool technology, which they're going to come and share with us so that they can save Earth people. Which never seems to quite work out that way. But oh. they're they're angels. They're basically angels. Yeah, they are they are angelic beings that people. So when I look at this, you know, from my sort of maybe jaundiced point of view, when I look at this whole sort of early UFO contactee business, what I see is just very it's just occultism going on. And I mean, it, it's simply spirit possession, spirit communication, channeled communications with angelic beings explained a different way, almost. Yeah, just, sort just of reskinned. Well, for, for, I guess, a more modern audience that, uh, but we just turn aliens, you know, aliens are simply angels in, in different guises. And it, it's one of those things that, see, the question of this, to me, isn't that that's what's going on, but is that deliberate? In other words, is someone deliberately creating this, or is it something that just kind of arrives out of the way, you know, is it just, is it just come out of the morass of the human psyche somehow? Do we, do we just invent these things on our own? Yeah, it's interesting. Is it internal or external? Uh, that's definitely a question worth exploring. Now, this is uh, sorry. I, I need to get my date straight. Uh, he would have he would have been doing this um, before the Roswell incident. Is that correct? No, after the Roswell. He's doing this in the nineteen fifties. Oh, okay, and and the Roswell was the forties uh, uh, there. So yeah, Roswell's forty seven. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, that was kind of the first. Uh, that was what brought the uh, the the whole UFO phenomenon more into the public eye, and he's writing about it fairly shortly after this incident. And yet, you you you've you've pointed out that he the way he describes things and everything is more more of this angelic instead of the little gray men, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, the 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 little evil gray, you know, the the gray. You know, he's moved into popular culture now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that's one of those things that seems to come along uh, with the with the abduction phenomenon that comes along in the seventies and the eighties. Mm-hmm. And it's um, and that that takes that takes things into a much sort of darker you know situation where the the aliens now become these kind of you know hostile entities hostile or at least you know let's say morally ambiguous yeah that's a good way to but put it. but earlier on yeah you know in the 50s uh, no they're they're all they're they're here you know the, the space people are wonderful and they're and they are coming to save us and they're very very upset about our testing atomic weapons Mm. Which, interestingly enough, one of the things, again, it goes back to the sort of intelligence angle on this, is that you know Williamson, Adamski, almost all of these early contactees had very active FBI files. <laughs> Somehow I'm and not surprised. Not surprised. And the reason why the FBI is interested in these guys is they think, okay, what do we got here? Mm, they're, they're communicating with mysterious beings who show up in some sort of aircraft and are saying that 
atom bombs are bad and that we should all live in peace and harmony and in some sort of collective world sounds like communism to me. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there was, there was this whole idea that this was, that somehow flying saucers were some part of an insidious commie plot to, um, you know, to in, invade the American public's mind and instill both fear, but also uh, to, to in some way secretly preach communism. And, oh, go ahead. Yeah, and, and you know that isn't helped by the fact that another one of these early contactees, like the the grant, the, the daddy of all contactees, George Adamski, mm-hmm. would say that yes, you know, the, on Venus, I think they have a communist society. I, I think I think it's communistic. So all you've got that you know, meeting with strange people in the desert, they might be <laughs> and and you're preaching nuclear disarmament. The FBI is going to show up, and and they do. So- uh, so that's a little bit interesting because then you see this this morph from from uh, uh, from these angelic benevolent beings that come along and they want us all to live in peace and and lay down our arms as it were um, and then uh, and then and then they somehow ended up morphing into these hostile or as you put it morally ambiguous beings. I wonder if that's not a coincidence. Then you know we had to sway the way the the public viewed these things. So that they didn't, you know, so they they didn't fall into those, as you put it, commie ideals. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I didn't put you up to saying that, did I? Um, no, the interest- I, I just kind of put it together. <laughs> what 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 are the uh, what are the interesting things about that? Is that there's a um, the side of this. The, the more I sort of look into it, I find a lot of things. This, in addition to occultism, the other thing I find is that it's chock full of people who have either former or active military backgrounds or connected with the aerospace industry. Absolutely, yeah. Way, way too many of them for that to be a kind of coincidence. So, And then you run across these things. Um, it, it's pretty clear when you look through stuff that the, the U.S. military uh, and, and even intelligence establishment was – you know, more than a little sort of freaked out by this phenomenon when it showed up. Uh-huh. And and by 1950, in particular, I think in 52, there's this overflight, or there are these, there are these UFO flightings over Washington, D.C. And the thing that really disturbed people in officialdom is that the UFOs weren't just, you know, it wasn't just somebody looking up the sky and seeing something. There were mysterious radar blips, okay? There were things that showed up on radar at Andrews Air Force Base and at Washington National Airport, and that was that was very difficult to explain away because it seemed to suggest, you know, I mean, the military would believe it when they showed up on radar. Mm-hmm. So this led to a whole series of conferences that uh, began to involve the Air Force, but also which brought in the CIA. Hmm. And it, and at one point in this, you had this meeting, um, and the then head of the, the CIA, a guy named uh, General Walter Bedell Smith, you know, sort of raised the possibility, uh, you know, is this the Russians basically engaged in some sort of psychological warfare against us? Uh-huh. Okay, is, is this all? And and whether it is or not, he then, and I'm sort of paraphrasing it, but he literally said, and how could we possibly use this in our own psychological warf- warfare operations? Which is interesting because one, it means apparently we have psychological warfare operations, yeah. and two, he he sees something there that might be useful. So for me, the thing that I'm really trying to in sort of you know excavating George Hunt Williamson isn't so much about Hunt Williamson, everything else that's going on around him, and again, maybe the degree to which again part of this stuff. Is another one of these cons. Yeah. I mean, a, a con, you know, a con perpetrated either by intelligence agencies or by military, foreign governments, or by something. I mean, this is what I meant by the fact that it's it's not just sort of accidental; it's deliberate. Yeah. It's it, and and that that I think is that's kind of my definition of a con, where you're trying to motivate people or influence their behavior through. Keeping you know, through putting out a certain amount of information, but also by constantly keeping something secret. The control of information. Yeah, yeah. Um, always, generally, always the kind of the, the promise of information that never quite arrives. <laughs> yeah, I think we've all uh, experienced that it's to some degree or another. Well, yeah, that's that's the secret of advertising, isn't it? But <laughs> oh, definitely. 
to promise everything, deliver as little as possible. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're, uh, we're getting a pretty close to out of time here, but, uh, uh, we appreciate that you've come to have this conversation with us and, uh, very insightful to say the least. Uh, well, thank you. I'd like to just ask, uh, just one more question and that's, uh, do you have any, uh, upcoming projects that, uh, that people can look forward to that our listeners may be able to, to, to look forward to in the future here? Uh, well, one of the things that I hope to do in the not too is for the great courses, uh, and those could be on everything from uh, crimes of the century, you know, murders, uh-huh. uh, and other sort of grisly things. Uh, and then we might also look at uh, something I call the secret history of World War One. Oh, that would be that great. Doesn't, doesn't, that, that's basically a lot about spies and sabotage and, and occultists. There you go. Because now you can see how all these things mix together. See how yeah. this whole conversation has we constantly come back one to the other? That's how I got into it. Because if you bump into one, then you bump into another one. I am working, uh, again, on Williamson. The possibility, and I, I will need people to encourage me in this if you're interesting, if anybody's interested in it, is to put all this stuff together about CIA, Air Force, Williamson, the rest of it, flying saucers, who's doing what to whom. Uh, and the tentative title I have for that book is uh, is Black Moon, which is uh, occultists, spies, and the origins of the American UFO phenomena. Oh, man, that just sounds like something I'm going to read as soon as it comes <laughs> out. So that just okay. sounds great. All right. Well, we once again we appreciate you joining us. And uh, do you have any kind of uh, social media or anything that people can follow you on, or is that not really your thing? Uh, the only thing I've got now, I'm not on Facebook now. I wouldn't do that. And uh, <laughs> uh, there are so many reasons why. But nevertheless, yeah, you can find out more about in my name, and it's it's got everything, including my my vita, which includes degrees that I actually received from real institutions. <laughs> I saw that. I did. I did <laughs> look the, it over. Or, or that, and that's what I'm telling you. And um, yeah, you can find out more about me there. And if anybody has any particular questions, not hate mail, they can they can always email me. My email address is there as well. We don't so we I, don't have a terribly way. hateful audience, so I doubt that they that's do good. that. <laughs> that's good. That's good. All right. Every well, now and then, one of those comes along. Yeah. I'm sure, yeah. Well, once again, we appreciate it, and uh, I think we'll go ahead and uh, cease our recording here. And uh, before we leave, uh, I'd like to ask our audience, what a, what what intrigues you about these subjects? And, uh, and can you shed, shed some light on some of the things we've discussed here? Just go ahead and contact us on our various social, social medias, or you can find us at corncastpodcast.com. And happy Halloween. 